You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. However, in this episode, and for the very first time, I had the privilege of interviewing a current member of the Blue Angels team, Lieutenant Brian Abe. He's the maintenance officer for the Blue Angels, and he's going to talk to us all about his career in the Navy, as well as how hectic this 2020 air show season's been as a result of COVID-19. He's also going to give us some insight into the team's decision to strategically pivot and honor those on the front line against COVID-19 by flying over major cities with the Air Force Thunderbirds. Later on in the podcast, I'm going to ask Lieutenant Abe all about the team's transition to the F-18 Super Hornet, and I'm very curious to hear about this C-130 I'm seeing all over social media that will serve as the team's new Fat Albert Airlines for the 2021 air show season. All this and more, so stick around and please join me in welcoming Lieutenant Brian Abe to the podcast. All right, Lieutenant Brian Abe, welcome to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. You're actually the first current member of a Blue Angels team I've ever had the privilege of interviewing. So a huge honor here for me. Really looking forward to diving in with you, learning about your career, hearing about how crazy this 2020 air show season has been. And really, on top of that, I mean, it's Saturday morning. I think I'm digging into your personal time here a bit. So very grateful to be speaking with you this morning. Oh, absolutely, uh, Ryan. Thanks for the opportunity. And like I say, uh, I'm glad to be here. Well, we're definitely glad to have you. So you're the maintenance officer for the Blue Angels. And based on my conversations with other maintenance officers and from an outside perspective looking in, it really seems like this is really one of the most stressful roles on the Blue Angels because you have to keep six to seven jets in the air at all times, as well as oversee an entire maintenance team. From your perspective, tell me about the scope of the role of a maintenance officer on the Blue Angels. So the maintenance officer here is different than in the typical than your fleet squadrons. In the fleet, it's a pilot who is the maintenance officer because eventually they'll eventually one day make it up to the CO and it's good to have a commanding officer know what it takes to run a maintenance department. Here, all of our pilots are flying the demonstration. So we have a a ground officer that we've hired, uh, it happens to be me this year, uh, to be the maintenance officer. It is a stressful job, but it's one that it's it's fun. It's a good stress. I am lucky to have a wonderful maintenance team from the maintenance master chief, Freddie Hernandez. He is the end of my yang, if so to speak. we balance each other out very, very well to the, the chiefs and the gunnery sergeants, to the first classes, and everyone in the Mace Department. We have the most talented technicians to maintain the some of the oldest aircraft in the fleet. So they take a lot of stress off my plate. You know, again, it's fun. It's different stress than you would think in a typical fleet squadron. At the end of the day, we are flying flight demonstrations, but at a very low altitude. So we want to make sure they're putting up the best and safest aircraft possible. And that's, that's my biggest uh, Thing moving forward is we always fly safe aircraft no matter what. And you didn't become a maintenance officer for the Blue Angels overnight. You've obviously had quite a long career in the Navy, 20 plus years. You grew up in Richardson, Texas, and after you graduated high school in 1997, you made a decision to enlist in the Navy. What what drove your decision to join the Navy? Well, uh, I was in high school and you know, I'm the oldest of two brothers and I, I knew I wasn't the studious one and college wasn't going to be the right fit for me. And I wanted to make sure that you know, my brother had the the funds to be able to go to college. So I, uh, at the time, the the slogan for the Navy was "Let your journey begin," and that really kind of resonated with me because you know I was 18 years old, and at the time I thought I didn't want to be 30 and be old and look back uh, at things that I wish I could have done, that I could have gotten out and seen the world and travel and just kind of give me a chance to get ready and grow up. So I talked to the recruiter. 
and I entered the delayed entry program and uh, enlisted in the Navy in December and headed off to boot camp. So uh, I really was excited for the to start my own journey. And so you ended up in Pensacola for Aviation Electronic Technician A School, which is really obviously focused on avionics and airplanes. Did you have an interest in aviation and that's what drove you to that school or is that just essentially where you ended up getting assigned? So, yes, it's where I got assigned uh, because of my rate as an AT. You know, when I drove down to pick a job before I even joined the Navy, I didn't know anything about the Navy or what rates entailed. And I was fortunate enough that uh, the, the chief driving down there was an AT. When I asked him kind of what his job was, you know, he told me I get to uh, maintain jets, I get to fix them, and then I get to go fly in them, which, you know, I thought that's going to be awesome. I get to go fly in a plane after I fix it. He neglected to uh, make sure that I signed up for the air crew portion of it also, but, you know, it worked out, uh, I think, uh, pretty well for me. And, and I did eventually ended up flying in the back of a jet regardless of how my rate shook out. But, uh, yeah, so Pensacola was where the all the aviation schools uh, come down to after boot camp. So my school, uh, when we check in, you can either go two routes. You can either go the ATO level, which is organization, where you actually get to work on the planes themselves and the ATI level, which is where you work on the boxes, the intermediate level. And I remember in boot camp, we were reading our Blue, blue Jackets manual that kind of tells us how to tie knots and how to be a sailor. And there's one picture of a, an ATO level on the flight deck, uh, launching aircraft off the flight deck. And I was like, man, that's, that's what I want to do. And fortunate enough, when they posted the, uh, the school listing, my name was on the O level side. And so you get down to Pensacola, not only where you're going to be going to school, but obviously the home base of the Blue Angels as well. I have no doubt you probably got to see him flying around, but did you have any meaningful interactions with any of the pilots or crew? And at any point, did you think or know that you were going to be on the Blue Angels yourself one day? I can tell you, no, I never thought I was going to actually be a Blue Angel. I didn't really know much about them. I just heard the rumble overhead and got to see him zoom by. Really, the, the first interaction I had with the Blue Angels, it wasn't even with the team actually. Um, my father drove my car down uh, from Dallas, Texas to uh, Pensacola while I was in A school. And uh, we went to go to the Naval Aviation Museum. And they had the, the movie, The Magic of Flight, that featured Blue Angels. And it was one of those memorable moments for, for me because I got to share a little bit with what my future would entail, just working on planes and being what it being in the Navy as an aviation electronics technician with my father, you know, unfortunately, uh, two weeks later after uh, he drove back, he passed away. So we never, I never got to share any kind of Blue Angel experience with them other than that movie. But it's one that it really, every time I drive by the museum or just think about it, just, it really, it touches, it just, a special place in my heart that I got to share that experience with my father before he passed. Yeah, I have goosebumps hearing that. And no doubt, I think your father is very proud of what you've accomplished and where you sit today. Uh, after you graduate A school, do you end up immediately getting deployed? What's your path after you graduate? So, yes, uh, my first squadron, uh, VFA 105, the Gunslingers, stationed Cecil Field. I, I showed up in middle of July. Uh, with my sea backpack, and six days later, we were out on the USS Enterprise on one of our workup cycles, considered it's called Comp2X, where you have to meet a series of exercises before your whole uh, air wing and the ships are considered combat ready. So uh, I was out there. Airman Abe didn't know how to get up and down a ladder well. I got lost many, many times on the, the Big E. So my first job in the Navy was uh, in first lieutenant. So my job was to make sure that I brought down the laundry and brought it back up six, seven ladder wells. And 
waxed the deck and made sure that the birthing was clean. So I really, uh, it was an eye-opening experience just from jumping right onto a ship. I think it was a, it was a great way to start my naval career. And you described some pretty humble beginnings there in your naval career, but you have actually been and deployed multiple times throughout your Navy career, and you've served on some pretty famous ships. How many deployments have you had in total? So I've been on about seven deployments, uh, not all of them in combat. I was uh, for our first one on the Enterprise. We participated in Operation Desert Fox. And then on 2003, we participated in, and still VFA 105, in uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So those were really my two combat deployments. But I've also spent uh, five years of my life at sea, either in support of OEF with uh, various squadrons. I've done RIMPAC, which is a really unique experience to be able to see and work alongside many other nations uh, in the rim of the Pacific. And we've taken the uh, the George Washington uh, around um, the Straits of Magellan in the wintertime, which is a really neat experience too. So out of the five years, I can definitely say that uh, it's been a great run. I love being on the ship. It just brings a different, unique uh, perspective to uh, the way the Navy is. So five years at sea, what's a typical day in the life for someone in avionics on an aircraft carrier? So a typical day, you know, we all have our different rates for the avionics branch. You know, our job is to make sure that all the uh, the systems are up and running for the Hornet to make sure that it's uh, an effective uh, a fighter uh, to put into combat or just a safe operation. Usually we get up about uh, five o'clock in the morning, pretty much like we do here at the Blue Angels. We get up early to make sure the jets are turned and, and set and ready. And in the fleet, we just call them just getting ready to go for a flight schedule. But uh, we'll go in there, we'll make sure the jets are good, and then we will execute the flight schedule, typically at about a 12-hour window, depending on when it starts, sometimes around 10 o'clock in the morning. And then as the avionics, we are there to make sure the jets are up and running. And if the jet comes back broke or a jet breaks on the go, that we run down to the hangar bay or to grab the part that we need to fix it, to get it out, to complete its mission. It's a fun experience. It's kind of like Groundhog's Day, where every day you get up, you, you know what you're going to eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner. It may not be exactly what you want, but it definitely has some flavor to it. And you know what you're wearing every day. So it makes makes the job pretty easy. It's a, it's a fun experience. Once you get going, it's a nice way to continue that battle rhythm for six to eight months. In looking at your bio and your career trajectory, it really appears as though you've had an ample opportunity to grow your career in the Navy. Is that an accurate description? I would definitely say that uh, I've my career has been one that's been very blessed to just be around some of the best, uh, that I consider the best leaders and mentors that the Navy has to offer. You know, I remember when I expressed interest that I want to be a troubleshooter, which is the person that actually hooks up to the aircraft to go out and fix it, that uh, one of my leaders in my LPO said, okay, get out there and fix it. And it was, uh, I remember very vividly, my first time that I ever hooked up to an aircraft was with Commander Shoemaker, who ended up being Admiral Shoemaker, the air boss, but he's still a commander at the time. And uh, I hooked up and I, I was shaking and I didn't know what I needed to do or what I needed to say, but he helped uh, walk me through it. So going from that first experience through the leadership and the mentors and guide me to be an LPO at sea, to being a chief petty officer, those experiences really helped me grow. But again, I couldn't have done it in a vacuum. I was fortunate enough to have some really great people to lean on and ask for advice. And you get 20 years into your naval career and you made the decision to submit an application to become maintenance officer for the Blue Angels. Tell me about what drove that decision for you. So when I was selected for limited duty officer, uh, before I actually got commissioned, my buddy, Sean Birkenkamp, who I made chief with, he was a prior Blue Angel AT. 
And he said, you know, Brian, you'd make a great Mo. Uh, like, I don't know what a Mo is, uh, but I thank you for that. And uh, I'd love to look into it more. So I started kind of looking into what a maintenance officer was. And it really kind of intrigued me because I love working on the F-18 Hornet. And I love the maintainers that work on it. So in order to just kind of continue on and further my career, I thought, you know what? This would be the probably the coolest experience would be able to lead the maintenance department of the most prestigious flight demonstration squadron in the world. So I thought about it, and I was fortunate enough in my first squadron to be stationed with Lieutenant Commander Rob Curley, now Commander Curley, who was the 34 pilot. And then we also had our CAG maintenance officer was Commander Manny Sanchez, and he was a former maintenance officer of the Blues uh, back in the early 2000s. And then we also had for our CAG, Pepper McCoy, who, uh, you know, along with a couple other uh, Blue Angel pilots, you know, I was able to, and maintenance officers, really be able to pick their brain. And it really just, it fanned the flame even more for me to want to apply for the team. So when they had the opportunity to apply for my first time, I, I went for it. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't selected. Garrett Hopkins was selected uh, for me above me or selected before me for this role. But, uh, you know, this is a dream I always had and I want to go for it. So my wife really said, hey, this is your dream. You need to go after it. And, and here I am today. I always enjoy hearing the story about how someone learned they made the Blue Angels. Who called you to let you know that you made the Blue Angels and how did that call go? So, uh, like I said before, when I, I wasn't selected as a finalist, or when I was not selected the previous uh, cycle, Boss Bernacchi called and he kind of went down the road of, hey, you know what? You're not the right fit. We'd like you a little more experience. We encourage you to come back and try again. So Boss Doyle called me. I remember my specific call-in time. I had uh, I had about five alarms set leading up to it. So I did make sure to I wanted to make my phone call because we have a five-minute window to call Boss. And I wasn't sure, do I call 30 seconds prior or do I wait 30 seconds? Do I do, don't seem too needy? Uh, but I settled on calling right at 11.35, uh, and uh, Bosto picked up the phone. He's like, hey, Brian, I uh, want to thank you again for applying. You know, we're kind of hoping to find a maintenance officer with a little more uh, platform diversity. And to myself, I was thinking, well, that's kind of weird because I'm a F-18 guy, and we have F-18 Hornets. So I thought, I would, you know, that's kind of what you were looking for with F-18 platform specific. But sure, boss, that's Okay. And uh, I actually looked at my wife and started shaking my head and she kind of, you know, tapped me on the shoulder. It was like, it's okay. You know, it, it's okay. You tried. Uh, and that went on for about four minutes. And then uh, boss uh, put me on the speakerphone and they, everyone yelled, welcome to the team. <laughs> and it was uh, from then on, it was just like, wow, I can't believe this is actually going to happen. Tell me about your first couple months with the team. I assume you reported to Pensacola. You traveled to some, some of the air shows in 2019 towards the end of the season before going out to winter training at the start of 2020. Uh, are your first couple of months with the Blue Angels drinking from a fire hose? Absolutely. I mean, just being a Blue Angel is constantly drinking from the fire hose. When we checked in as khaki newbies, we were here for a week and got checked in. And then we were on the road and learning how to be a Blue Angel and about where to be, where to be at the right time and what to say. From the time that we checked in in September until drop a salute in November, we were home for about two weeks out of that whole entire uh, couple months. So just learning how to be a Blue Angel was drinking from the fire hose. And then winter training is a it's a totally different animal uh, in itself. Uh, going out to El Centro, it, it's great. We That's our second home in El Centro. We've gone out there for many, many years. And uh, they really, uh, they know what we need and how to take care of us from the Navy League, Ted and Lisa Gallinet. They really uh, look after us to make sure that, you know, the Blue Angels have what we need to be successful. Typical day for us uh, starts at 
for the maintenance team. They're up at, before the crack of dawn with the uh, the planes that are, they have them turned and online at five o'clock in the morning, getting ready for the first event of the day, which is typically goes about eight o'clock in the morning. So uh, Doc Hicks and I, we get up and head into work right about five o'clock in the morning, talk with the, the maintenance team and he'd talk with uh, and take care of some of his medical business. And then we'd head over to the admin building at 6.30 for our first brief. And then he and I were on the road and out to the middle, middle of uh, a bombing range called Shade Tree, which uh, there is zero shade and one small little tree out there. And we have a, a nice little white uh, trailer that we can hide in the elements if it gets too uh, windy or rainy. Uh, talking with an old uh, doc, uh, Tamara Scalise, uh, before she got on the team, there was no porta potty out there. So thanks to her, uh, we now actually have a porta potty. So it's a nice little slice of heaven that we get to spend uh, about anywhere from eight to 12 hours out in the desert. The diamond will launch out first. And then uh, directly after that, the souls will turn around and launch out. And then we have a couple hours where we can uh, take advantage of the little bit of downtime. Doc usually will go for a run and run up. We have a hill that he'll go run up or I'll uh, knock out some paperwork. We have a grill set up so we can at least cook and maintain some, uh, some sustenance out there. And we just have some fun with the video team. We just get to kind of wait for the second round to come out. And then uh, Boss and uh, the solos will come out again. And then on certain days of the week, uh, we usually typically on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we have where the Boss and the solos will start working themselves, integrate into the actual delta that you see over the field at Shade Tree. So those days, typically they'll launch out again right around 3.30 in the afternoon. And then we wrap up and get off the field right around five, six o'clock at night. So those are some long days. And then as soon as we get done off the field, we head back to the admin building for a quick debrief to find out what we can do better because we're constantly debriefing. And then um, Doc and I will head back over to the maintenance department to wrap up anything, to, to visit with the troops to see what they need and how we can support them. And then we'll, uh, again, it's kind of one of those back on the ship things. You rinse and repeat and get up and do it again six days a week. And given that the planes are up in the air two or three times a day during winter training, and given that these F-18s are some of the oldest planes, some of the oldest F-18s in the fleet, did that create an extra burden for the maintenance team, or uh, did the planes hold up pretty well during the high intensity of training? Yes, despite their age, they are, are very in very good shape. We have, uh, you know, over the past 34 plus years, we have groomed these F-18 Hornets. They are some of the oldest in the fleet, but we have the, the best maintainers in the fleet to keep them up. I liken to them as a uh, classic car where... If you let it sit for too long, you're going to have problems getting it started. But once you get it going, you fly every day, it'll run and perform to the, the best of its ability. There are some definitely some interesting things that break on these aircraft because we fly them harder than anybody else. But uh, we have the fortunate ability to be able to reach back to that sage knowledge of maintaining a legacy aircraft to know what exactly it needs. And I can tell you, these maintainers are top notch. They know exactly every single little idiosyncrasy with every single aircraft. And they know what makes these things tick. And they will spend all hours of the night making sure that these jets are ready to go and safe aircraft uh, for the pilots to get in and fly either just a practice demonstration or demonstration for the, uh, for the public. And just prior to your winter training coming to a close this year, you guys actually had an extended visit from the Air Force Thunderbirds. Uh, to my knowledge, that's not something that happens too often. Can you give some insight into the reason why the Thunderbirds paid a visit to the Blue Angels this year in El Centro for winter training? It was just a great collaboration between two teams. Typically, uh, we don't go to a show site with the Thunderbirds. You know, the last time we did that was back in uh, actually in Andrews Air Force Base in 2019. We try to maintain and 
per DOD guidance. So just to have two teams there with nothing else is to sh share best practices and kind of get to see how each other operate. It was great. We were parked on the, uh, the right side and they were on the left side just to nose to nose to watch how they did their ground show and how we did ours. And we actually had one of our crew chiefs go out and catch their boss jet and one of their crew chiefs caught boss G. So it was, it was neat just to see that collaboration to go along with it, to go out and watch their demo. They have fly a great demo also, a lot of energy that they, uh, they bring to it. So we, got, we took a lot of stuff away from them and they uh, got a lot of good stuff from us. And one fun little side note for it, whenever we get together, we play a softball tournament and the, uh, the loser of the softball tournament uh, gets a, a trophy and the trophy being a actual toilet that is painted half blue and half red. And uh, we were the recipients of the trophy back in 2019, but I can say that we definitely made sure and they now own the trophy going forward. So we were able to return the trophy to its rightful place, the Thunderbirds. Um, but really, this is a great, uh, again, collaboration. I got a chance to talk and get to know their maintenance officer, Mike Bell. You know, we got to share a lot of uh, different uh, experiences and I've leaned on him for a lot of things. I've called him about once a month just to kind of check in to see how his team's doing. He's done the same. And uh, I didn't know exactly how important that was going to be moving forward into this uh, 2020 season. Yeah, you've alluded to it. Obviously, 2020 been a terrible year as it results to COVID-19 and health and economic impact to our country and around the world, really. Uh, from personal experience, I was actually scheduled to drive down to an air show in the middle of March. I was going to drive from Austin, Texas, where I live, down to Del Rio, Texas, to see the first air show of the Air Force Thunderbirds uh, when about an hour before I was to get in the car you know, I got word through social media that the air show had actually been canceled. So everything seemed to come on very suddenly. How did the Blue Angels learn that they were going to need to start canceling and modifying their schedule for the, the 2020 air show season? Really, I mean, we learned pretty much when everyone else did. Um, it, it's unfortunate just the way, again, 2020 and what COVID has done. Uh, we just had to kind of adapt just as the world did. And we, the priority for us was making sure that the general public was safe, that, you know, there were no mass gatherings and, you know, especially want to make sure that even the team was safe too. So a lot of, a lot of thought process went in just to how 2020 was going to shake out. It's unfortunate, again, that the air show seasons is turned out the way it was. Um, hopefully in 2021, we can get back to doing, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. But again, it, the whole team's heart goes out to everyone that's been affected by COVID. And especially with the airshow industry, it's had a huge impact and a rippling effect that hopefully the one that we can get back to in 2021 and, and get back to doing what we love to do. And so you guys were actually able to make a strategic pivot and you started flying over major metropolitan areas and healthcare facilities uh, to honor our frontline healthcare workers in what was known as Operation America Strong. How did that mission come to be? How did it materialize? That was a really, um, a really important mission for all of us. It was something that we we're really proud and honored to do to honor the the frontline workers and healthcare workers and everyone on the on the lines uh, battling uh, COVID. You know, we knew that 2020 again we weren't going to be able to fly air shows, but if we could show some solidarity that we were that our hearts went out to the American public and everyone that was fighting this pandemic. So we um, we collaborated with the Thunderbirds and it really grew very quickly. It's amazing all the effort that went into it. I remember, you know running up to boss's office, you know, every hour with different briefs that, you know, we were all in charge of huddling up to do. So I was, you know, my role, the aspect was to make sure that we had the logistics platform, that we had to be able to 
the jet had to divert that we were able to have uh, the support to go get it. We had to make sure that we had everything set and ready to go. So it was one of those things that we didn't think we were going to do in 2020, but we were very honored. I can tell you, you know, the entire team, everyone was proud to do it. And it gave us a, a really good sense of uh, purpose that we could actually do something for the American public. And definitely a unique mission for the Blue Angels, who are we traditionally see flying high-performance maneuvers, high-precision maneuvers in an air show. And now they're taking off for long-haul flights, sometimes six, seven hours at a time, taking off from Pensacola and flying to places like New York and Texas. Uh, and I digress a little bit here. I mean, great footage from the mission of the team refueling and retanking. In fact, there's one photographer out there named Owen Hewitt who captured the team with uh, in photography. Uh, they were tanking over his house. But uh, again, I digress. But my question really is here for you. Uh, how do you prepare the planes for a mission like this? Is it differently to prepare the Blue Angels for a long-haul flight where they'll be up in the air for six hours versus how you prepare the airplanes for may, what may be a 40-minute demo, but you know, high-performance, high-precision flying? No matter whether it's flying a demo or flying six hours, we made sure that uh, the aircraft is always safe to fly. You know, We might have given one extra look, but overall, we made sure that you know whatever goes up in the air, the pilot's going to come back. I can say the preparation was much different just all around, though. Our flight doc, Aaron Hicks, we actually consulted him on COVID diverts. So we planned all our missions and say we, the pilots planned on the missions to make sure that uh, they flew over the cities uh, and they had a good flight path home to make sure that if they had to divert where it would be safe to go. That's something that typically a flight surgeon was not going to brief us on. Aaron's role at ComCard is to make sure that we're flying a safe demo and making sure that we're flying as close as we can, as safely as we can. So just having that. And then with public affairs, they put together such an amazing product to be able to brief the the public to know where we're going to be flying to Chomps, our number three pilot, Frank Zastapil, who uh, made sure that we had the tanker support that he, we coordinated with the Air Force. So they had their tankers right where they needed to be every single time. It was an amazing effort by both organizations to be able to even execute America strong. And it was one thing, again, we were very proud to do it. So it definitely, I had no fear and no worries about my jets, uh, making sure that we made it back safely. So obviously a lot of preparation to ensure that this mission was successful and the pilots were safe. Uh, Is it safe to say that you didn't have too many nerves, uh, even though at times the planes were hundreds of miles away from Pensacola? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I was definitely still nervous. I mean, no matter what we're doing, it's one of those, these these planes can break. Uh, so I watched with, uh, just like everybody else on the news and made sure and counted that we had six or seven planes that were smoking over whatever city that we were at. And fortunately we were able to, anytime they hit the tanker, uh, they were able to talk to the KC, uh, 10, uh, relay if there's any issues, which unfortunately there were none, but I can tell you the, the first time after the first OAS mission and, uh, all the jets flew over Pensacola and they just flew over in the Delta formation after seven hours of flying over and then they came into land. It was, uh, it was definitely one of relief and excitement for everybody because I was fortunate enough to get in the back of the plane for with uh, Rocket on the two pilot who was uh, from Canada, Texas. And so we had two Texas boys flying over uh, Dallas and, and Houston. And it was, it was definitely an emotional moving experience. One, just being able to see everyone on the rooftops at hospitals in the field and just knowing that just what we're doing is hopefully bringing just a little bit of a uh, break of the monotony and 
a little bit of joy to everyone's life, just a, just a quick pass over uh, a hospital. And, you know, when we circled around uh, downtown Dallas, just looking down and just knowing, you know, that's where I got dropped off by my dad at MEPS before I headed out to boot camp, just looking down and then realizing I'm flying in the back of a Blue Angel jet was just, again, it touched back to what I previously talked about with the magic of flight experience with my father. But five hours in a jet was a long time, and I was, I was happy to get out. Well, no doubt, America. Very proud of both the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels for supporting our frontline workers against COVID-19. Now, we really started seeing the Blue Angels maintaining their standard practice schedule throughout 2020, despite the fact that there are no air shows, which means you as a maintenance officer have responsibilities at the comm cart. And really, you know, if we were having air shows, you'd be at the comm cart as well. And we hope to see you at the comm cart in 2021. What are your responsibilities during a demonstration or a practice when you're at the comm cart? At the maintenance officer comm cart, really, it's to make sure that we're flying the jet safely. I'm the liaison from the ground to either boss or the solos to make sure that we are passing information. And also it's also to relay quick feedback. So I know that on a hygiene maneuver that, you know, the solos pull that it's that instant validation that they ask me a question. So I pass them a grade that Aaron has relayed to me. So it's to make sure that they're still haven't G-locked or A-locked to make sure that they're still flying safely. And then we look for that feedback back and forth or I'm passing information as there might be a, a helicopter or a lifelike coming into the area that we need to deconflict with to make sure that we're going to be flying safely in just that general area. So we have uh, four radios. Each radio is set to a different frequency that I can talk to either the solos individually to boss or the delta when they're flying together. And then we also have an emergency radio that used to in case a jet has to troubleshoot anything uh, just to get it back and fixed and get it back into the uh, the demonstration. So uh, there's work with myself, uh, the flight doc. We have our video crew that makes sure and videos everything. They're really the ones that are set up comm cart. And then we have our relay. And we actually hired an additional maintenance officer this year. Uh, I don't know if you saw Lieutenant uh, Henry Cedeno. He'll be joining us at comm cart to make sure that this is an added safety feature to make sure that, again, the, the most important part of the demonstration is the safety uh, the demonstration itself. So how frequently are you having to deal with outside aircraft encroaching on the aerobatic box of the Blue Angels when they're up in the air? Uh, there have been a, a few times uh, in El Centro. Uh, I can tell you that there's a small little airfield that uh, we are constantly having to watch and make sure that there are no aircraft coming in. A couple of times we had some helicopters that would uh, encroach and we'd have to just make sure and tell boss, hey, you have a helicopter that is crowd right behind the crowd at 6,000 feet so he knows where to go. Um, and then, of course, you know, we've had a, a life flight that went through and they had to get into the area. So we, we stayed on deck and we made sure because, you know, in the day, you know, we're making sure that the what people need, especially in emergency, gets gets through. Um, I can tell you one time we had a, when the Thunderbirds were flying, there's a, a guy that just zoomed right over about 6,000 feet when they were flying too. So, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, you know, it's good to know and be able to pass that information real time. So we have our someone that's in the aircraft tower or in the tower there that relays down to us. So it's a really, uh, it's a team effort to make sure that just not only just flying in the air, but on the ground too, making sure that we're relaying that information. And also to watch just for boss to make sure that he doesn't have a, a low pool. So we're there to give them a safety call to make sure that there's always eyes on watching out. So between myself and uh, either XO, who's running comp cart with me on the on their off days, and uh, Doc and our public affairs officer, we 
do a lot to make sure that uh, ComCard is ready to go. How about drones? Have those been a major issue for you this year in 2020, or do you anticipate them being a significant issue now that there are so many consumer drones out there on the market? Fortunately enough, we haven't really had to deal with it. Even when I was in Khaki Newbie, the, the air show sites do really well in maintaining that five-mile area for drones. Um, I can say the closest call we had for a drone was actually during OAS. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but there was one guy, he got really, really close and we were flying because we had to publish our flight path. But I would say the drones were more nervous. I was more worried about the drones during that than I would be at a typical air show. Yeah, I did see that drone footage and I was quite disappointed with it. So we'll leave it at that. And and transitioning and no pun intended, but the team is transitioning to the F-18 Super Hornet from the Legacy Hornet. And from a layman's perspective, mine's pretty layman, uh, the airplanes look very similar. And so my question really is for you, is this going to be a major undertaking for the team to transition from the Legacy Hornet to the Super Hornet and specifically for the maintenance team? Will this be a big undertaking? So a Super Hornet is about 30, 33% bigger than a regular Legacy Hornet. So right off the bat, the size difference is going to be very noticeable when we start taking off and it's also going to be much louder. So I'm looking forward to having four jets taking off from the afterburner, which is going to be just a rumbling sound that's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun to watch and listen to. As far as maintaining the aircraft in the transition, uh, Mo Hopkins stuck around for an additional year and has done a lot of work in the background. He's worked with Boeing and he's worked with a lot of the program offices to make sure that we have what we need to set us up on the right foot. He's put a really good plan in place. Uh, and we've hired a lot of talented F-18 Hornets uh, maintenance personnel to help us with the transition. We're fortunate enough that the Super Hornet is a platform that's being currently used in the fleet. A lot of that knowledge coming to us is really going to help us out. You know, we are getting the some of the oldest Super Hornets that were ever designed. They are called LRIP Super Hornets or low rate initial production. They were the first versions that were put out there for the uh, used as trainers and test evaluators for the Super Hornet that's actually used in the fleet today. So these never really saw combat experience, but you know, they may be old, but some of them only have less than 2,000 hours on them. So they are relatively young in the life of a Super Hornet. So we're looking forward to seeing how the 2021 season is going to go. But uh, to answer your question, the maintenance aspect of it, it's going to be a different animal, but I'm looking forward to having some updated technology that we have. The uh, Legacy Hornets, they have some very brittle wiring that tends to break in places that you would never find or even think to look. With the Super Hornet, at least it's got a little more updated technology. So on the whole, it's going to be a great transition, and I'm looking forward to being part of it. And another addition for the 2021 season, and already making its debut with the team, is the new C-130 that's going to take the place of Fat Albert. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, you guys teased a new paint job for the C-130 earlier in the year, and I got really nervous. I'm a guy that loves tradition, and you recently debuted the paint scheme, and I absolutely love it you guys nailed it the new fat albert looks amazing i'm really excited to be able to see this thing in person tell me about this new fat albert i know you guys also put some pictures on social media when the plane was getting some maintenance in dallas you guys put it uh the new fat albert next to the old fat albert and you know there were some differences that stood out to me and specifically uh the propellers and the blades look very different uh tell me the differences about this new fat albert versus the old fat albert so the the new fat albert you you hit it right out the head um 
the the blades and the props are different. So the old T model was a four prop, and then this the new J model is, uh, has six blades. And then the inside of the cockpit is completely different. It's all digital. It's got uh, they call it a glass cockpit. So it's got all the nice new technology. It is a beautiful aircraft. I can tell you um, the first time I drove in after she landed and seeing that big tail, big blue tail sticking out uh, top of the trees with that crest. It, it just it's so awesome to see and it's great to have her on the fly line for the for the paint scheme that was really all uh, m1 bo mayberry and aaron hicks they conceptualized that and they put a lot of long hours to making sure that paint job was spot on and then marshall the team over in the uk they painted that thing and beautifully so there's a lot of work and pardon the pun the, it was a herculean effort to make sure to get Scott albert back over to the united states there are some delays that were faced again with COVID, but Marshall and the program offices and everybody who's put a lot of work into making sure that Fat Albert made it here back to the United States. And so we've got a couple of weeks to do some wrap up some, uh, some scheduled maintenance and we're going to make sure we've got one more inspection to do and we'll be getting Fat Albert back up in the air here very, very soon. So we'll have a, uh, a brand new uh, Super Hornet Blue Angel that's painted and hopefully fully functioning here. Uh, very, very soon, along with a uh, Fat Albert. So the the band and back together, especially the 2021 team, is going to be something that's going to be really awesome to see. Yeah, really exciting to think about the 75th anniversary of the Blue Angels with the new Super Hornet and the new Fat Albert. And as we continue our discussion about Fat Albert, you know, traditionally it's been an all-Marine crew. Does the maintenance for Fat Albert fall under the scope of your purview? Are you in charge of the maintenance of Fat Albert? Yes. So Fat Albert does uh, does now. Before, it was maintained by the flight engineers when it was a C-130T model. And, um, you know, there's a lot of new technology, a lot of new things that we need to make sure with the J model we get right right off the bat. So we have a great maintenance team with, led by uh, Staff Sergeant Vasquez. He's done a – him and the rest of the team have really put that plane together from the ground up and got it over here safely and said that uh, we're going to make sure that she is 100% inducted in the maintenance department. We've never really had a maintenance team or a shop working on Fat Albert. So we've, we've worked really well with the rest of the squadrons in the fleet. We went to Fort Worth with VMGR 234 and up to Cherry Point and 252. They've really helped us out a lot. And me, uh, I'm an F-18 guy through and through. I don't know anything about C-130. So again, it goes back to that fire hose analogy where I'm learning day in and day out on what makes a C-130 tick. And it is such a fun aircraft. and I cannot wait to just sit in Fat Albert and just go for a ride. It is going to be so much fun to have her in just to provide the logistical aspect for the Blue Angels. It's going to help us out tremendously. All right. And as we begin to wrap it up here, and you might have alluded to this already, but what has been one of the biggest highlights in your first year with the Blue Angels thus far? Yeah, there can't be just one uh, personal thing. I mean, it's just there's so many working. I said every day I come into work with a smile on my face just to know that I get to work with some of the great maintainers. Some of the, the personal highlights for me, you know, flying for my first time in the backseat of F-18 Hornet in my 22 years. It's with uh, our narrator, and he put me through the paces. I, I hung in there pretty well. Uh, I made it through, pulled seven and a half Gs, and only grayed out a little bit. But, uh, you know, we came into the break over the, the building where I went to A school, and just to look down and just know that I started there and ended up in the backseat of a Hornet was pretty awesome. You know, flying over downtown Dallas and just, again, in support with solidarity for the 
for everyone uh, for Operation America Strong was a moving experience. And then one that really sticks out to me just as a, a fun story was uh, when we did our flyover for the 4th of July flyover Mount Rushmore, we had to basically come in from behind to do our Delta breakout. And in order to line up when we do our Delta breakout, the comp card, we shine a, a flashlight. We have a big light uh, flashlight or a mirror that we give it to boss so he knows kind of where to line up. But if you're coming from the back of Mount Rushmore, it's just trees and you wouldn't know where Mount Rushmore is. So I got to hike to the top of Mount Rushmore and go all the way to the back and stand uh, while the entire flight was uh, flying over. And about uh, two hours before we were supposed to take off, I got a call from my chief and they said, hey, Mo, we've got a problem. We can't get fuel to our aircraft. So again, this is one of those Blangel things where you're like, okay, how are we gonna make this work? And fortunately enough, I knew that our public affairs officer, she was standing right next to our the two-star general that was running the whole flyover. So I called her and said, hey, Chelsea, can you please tell that two-star general that I need gas to my planes or else we're not gonna make this flyover. And uh, she texted me back and said, yep. And the, uh, the general said, please let him know when he can stand down. So I didn't think at any time in my career that me as lieutenant was going to be tasking a two-star to get uh, fuel to an aircraft. So I think that right there was one fun anecdote, but probably the one that's going to stick out for the rest of my life is I have a little uh, little spiel that I say right before boss either uh, taxis out or takes off. My kids make me say it every night after dinner uh, so then they can run around and pretend to be Blue Angels. So I love hearing that, or I'll be on the phone and, and they'll just yell and they'll, they can recite it almost verbatim, word for word. So that right there, just, it shows that just, it's a fun family aspect of it. And I, again, it has been a crazy first year, one with a lot of highs and lows that we didn't think this is the way 2020 was going to play out. But uh, I know, you know, moving forward, 2021 is going to be a really fun year, especially uh, being our 75th anniversary year. All right. Well, my last question for you here, you have had over 20 years of success in the Navy, and you're now the maintenance officer for the Blue Angels. So what advice can you offer a young person who's considering making that jump and joining the Navy today? My biggest advice is whether you're going to do four years or make it a career, you know, any branch of service, Navy for me has provided so much structure and has provided me the chance to so many different opportunities. One that I never thought as a boy growing up in Texas that I would be able to travel over to Dubai or travel and see the world and just be able to see, get to experience the things that life has to offer. And whether it be flying in the back of a jet or being on the flight deck, it's a, just a unique experience that I'd say for anyone that wants a challenge and wants to serve their country, that the Navy is such a great way to go. Well, Lieutenant Abe, this has been a great conversation. On a more personal note, I did want to extend uh, my family's gratitude, uh, not only to you, but the Blue Angels for the wonderful gesture. Uh, we saw the unveiling of the new F-18 Super Hornet in the Blue Angels livery, and we saw Captain Roy Butch Forrest underneath the canopy of that cockpit, and and that meant a lot to us. I obviously didn't know it was going to happen. So the day it was unveiled, I got a lot of text messages, but you know, gave me goosebumps, made my day and just, just a wonderful gesture by the team. So on behalf of my family, thank you so much. Uh, we were, we were more than fortunate and we we're happy to do it. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the legacy of your grandfather and you know, all that he's done to make sure this team is what it is. So again, we're, we're glad to do it and we're always glad to be here. 
and the team going on 75 years old next season. And that's been the real fun part of this channel. The Blue Angel Phantoms project is really documenting the history. And, and really, it did start in 1946, but so many people have come after that to build the legacy of the Blue Angels that exist today. And it's been really fun getting to document that history. It's been you know, over 200 pilots, countless maintainers. And to see where the team is today uh, is just absolutely incredible. And I wish you guys a wonderful 2021 season. Absolutely. No, we are. I know all the maintainers were chopping the bit and ready to get on the road and, and show what we can do. So we are excited uh, for the 75th anniversary and hopefully with a, a Super Hornet and an extra loud demonstration. All right. Special thanks to Lieutenant Brian Abe and the Blue Angels for allowing us to do that interview today. It was a blast. I found it to be really insightful and I am pumped and can't wait for the 2021 season. We have the new F-18 Super Hornet to look forward to as well as the new Fat Albert. I am the biggest Fat Albert fan in the world, so I'm especially pumped on that. So in the meantime, if you like this interview, make sure you're subscribing to my YouTube channel, Blue Angel Phantoms, the YouTube channel. Also, go to your favorite podcast app and search for Blue Angel Phantoms Podcast and subscribe. So until next time, thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you real soon.